Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, Owen Jones here. Welcome to the podcast. Make yourself at home. Now, the government have messed up the pandemic at every possible stage. It's led to tens of thousands of avoidable deaths, a cycle of of pretty traumatising lockdowns, but also economic chaos. There were voices they could have listened to if they wanted to avoid this nightmare. Now, one is Professor Devi Sridhar. She's chair of global public health at the University of Edinburgh. You will have seen her a lot on our screens. Uh, time after time, she's been vindicated, but but so tragically. Now, we're going to talk about what the government got wrong, how up to 90% of deaths could have been prevented, what the new strain means, and how we're going to get out of this nightmare. Just some quick housekeeping. This podcast, we're all about offering an alternative to the right-wing media, taking on injustice, speaking truth to power, offering optimism and hope, showing there's another way, and also having some fun. We've got a lot of interviews, discussions, documentaries, and more for you to listen to. But we want to expand, offer more content. We've got a team on union wages. So anything you donate via the support of function in the podcast description is really, really appreciated. Or please go to patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. There you can become a regular supporter and have a say over who we speak to, what we talk about, what issues we focus on. Whatever you do, please like the show in iTunes. Uh, it takes literally a second. Subscribe to the podcast and share the show with your friends, family, workmates, and anyone. Strangers in the streets. Who knows? With that all done, please enjoy this podcast with Devi. Bear in mind it was recorded just before Christmas, but it's it's very relevant. All of our interviews will now be up when they're done. It will make you angry, but I think also offer some hope. Devi, what an honour. Hello. Very painful Christmas jump. We made a commitment. We made a solemn promise to each other that we would wear we would wear a festive-related jumper. And you've kept your side of the bargain, so thanks for not leaving me hanging. Of course, of course. Although I have to say, like, for as an American, it's a little bit, this is like a whole new tradition. I started wearing them now even in late November because I love them so much. And I suppose this year, we put we put the Christmas tree up, I think, at the end of November because given how what a hellish dystopia we've lived in for several months, I think Christmas was the only thing people were looking forward for. Yeah, there was always the hope that we'd have like, at least Christmas will get there. Though, of course, the scientific part of my brain was like, nah, but the emotional part was like, yay, we're going to have fun and party. But no. <laughs> but no. So first, just to kick off, I mean, I just want to ask something about you first before we t- you know go into real virus talk. Because it's fascinating because you're, you know, this extremely preeminent uh, public health uh, professor at Edinburgh University. And obviously your job is to is to raise, you know, people's awareness of these issues. But normally that's probably like swimming against the tide, uh, getting the media to take these issues seriously. But this year you've become a celebrity. I mean, you're, you're, you're a fixture on our daily televisions. People like myself become something of a life raft. Just talk me through that. It must be quite a surreal thing. So just talk me through what that's been like for you just on, on, on a human level. Well, yeah, so I'm used to teaching medical students and MPH students and trying to convince people in government to take public health seriously and to take whatever it is, the World Health Organization financing and World Bank loans and um, to go from that and trying to kind of convince journalists to cover your latest article to actually just being deluged with requests has been um, um, pretty astonishing. I think, though, you know, in the end, it's just we're trying to communicate to people what's happening. It's affecting everybody's lives. And I try to offer kind of honest truths with no spin. And luckily, I'm one of the few people who can because I'm an academic. So I can kind of say what I think. Hopefully, it's informed by some expertise and some background and then hope that it helps people make sense of this and they don't despair when trying to kind of make sense of what's happening. So going right into the 
into, I suppose, what everyone's thinking about at the moment, which is what a way to end the year under essentially blockade and siege as a nation. <laughs> Things can only ever get worse, as it turns out, in 2020. But in terms of this new strain of the virus, now, I suppose the problem is there's been a real breakdown of trust amongst large sections of the population with the government's ability to manage this pandemic for some pretty obvious reasons. So when people heard about this new strain, which is what over 70% supposedly more infectious, without going all tinfoil hat, although some people have done that, people thought, well, that's very convenient. You know, they, they have to shut down Christmas, very unpopular decision. Here's something convenient. But how, so how serious is this new strain? Is it as it's been presented? How much do we actually, how much do we actually know about it, if you like? Yeah. And just to say, I mean, I'm smiling and laughing a lot because I find it funny You because if you can't laugh, you end up crying because at some stage you just think like, can 2020 get any worse? And then something new happens. So the three things scientists were looking for were first, you know, is this one spread faster? Because then that means suppression is much harder. It means we need harsher and harsher restrictions. The second is, are there worse health outcomes, hospitalizations, younger people affected? And the third is, could this evade our vaccines, which is one of our few ways through this? And I think we have the answer to the first from the nerve tag paper you referred to, which is, yes, it does seem to transmit, um, be more transmissible. Um, we don't yet know what it means in terms of health outcomes. And it seems like scientists are pretty confident with these changes, the vaccines will still work, though not absolutely certain. And so that's where we are. I mean, the other puzzle that's been raised is all these travel bans have been instituted, you know, now over 40 countries saying we don't want anyone, any flights in and out of the UK, is whether we've picked it up because we have such good advanced sequencing, um, and it's a testament to British science and the scientists who are across the world living in Britain, um, or is this about actually it really it, it, and other countries have had it but they're not picking it up or is this really something that's originated here and we don't and we don't know that yet but i think more countries will find that they have this already i mean we've heard i mean there's been talk about south africa a strain in south africa which again has raised concerns uh i mean in terms of you know, I mean, it was said, I mean, again, I know a lot of this is, is speculation it just slap me down at any point, but because I know it, it was suggested that towards the beginning of the pandemic that actually these viruses can end up becoming more infectious, but maybe less virulent at the same time, is the truth is we just, at this stage, just don't know enough about this virus. We just know it's likely to be more infectious and therefore drastic measures are on that basis at least justified. Yeah, I mean, I think the one lesson of 2020 is move hard, move early and move before you have all the data, because if you have to wait to be right before you move, you'll just be too late. And that was the lesson back in January and February, the countries that went quickly into lockdowns without fully understanding what was happening in Wuhan and, you know, put in place travel restrictions, got their testing up and running, ended up doing better than those who kind of waited and collected data and collected data. And by the time they got all the data, they already had a full swing epidemic. Um, and so here, yeah, there's different hypotheses. So one is that, you know, the more virus you have circulating, the more likely you are to have more mutations, the more jumps into different species and back again. So the more complex this is going to be to handle, because then even if we do get a vaccine, um, even if we do have people infected, that might not protect you against a new strain. So that's the worry there and the concern for scientists over, could we see a whole new strain coming in? That means all of our efforts so far, not as impactful. But there's another way to see it, which is you could have a virus that's, you know, you want a virus, basically, for a virus wants to spread, you want one that spreads through people who don't know they're spreading it. So asymptomatic, mild symptoms, respiratory means, but not to kill you immediately. So ideal virus keeps you alive the first week. So you spread it everywhere and then kills you in the second week. So it's not like it becomes more innocuous. It just might become more smart. So we don't know how it'll evolve. I guess that's the point. It's just we know that evolutionarily you do want a virus that's out there and circulating. So it doesn't make people immediately ill. It might make them ill a week or so later. And unfortunately, that's what COVID does. If we're going to rewind back to the beginning of this absolute nightmare, so it's nearly a year ago, on the 31st of December, as after an already turbulent year, 2019 felt kind of like the end of season finale to a slightly <laughs> over-the-top drama series, which was probably already a bit far-fetched. So people were going to get on party, and they did. They partied in huge numbers. And on the 31st of December, it was announced, uh, as well, the front page of the Times said, a glorious year for... Britain beckons, but at the, it buried in the news was reports of an unusual cluster of pneumonia cases in Wuhan province. And in January, we got the kind of build-up. We got new, a novel coronavirus identified, the first death, I think, within the first two weeks, and then cases outside of China. 
when for you was the uh oh moment, the moment of this is something very potentially serious? When when did that come for you? Well, so the buzz started in early January among kind of the health security community that I'm part of. That there was kind of this new cluster. WHO was notified countries, but we didn't yet know if there was human to human transmission, and we didn't yet know what the underlying reason was. Was it SARS, MERS, a new influenza? Um, and so you can't really freak out at that point because every month there's like hundreds and hundreds of signals of potential outbreaks, and not all of them become pandemics. So you kind of are assessing it. So for me, the moment was in mid January. When with 500 cases, Wuhan went into full lockdown of about 60 million people. And that was the moment where you realized um, this is not the flu because China would have not locked down 60 million people. And then you saw the hospitals coming up within a week. You saw the, you know, the health um, workers being flown in from parts of China. And I think at that point, even you know, before it was confirmed, it was clear there was human to human transmission. And this was having very severe clinical outcomes for people who needed serious, you know, hospital care, ventilation, oxygen, um, you know, intubation. And so that was the moment for me. And that's why when I keep hearing these debates, oh, it's like the flu. I'm like, we kind of passed that point in mid-January. I don't think China would have locked down 60 million people for the flu. How prepared would you say the government was in this country for a pandemic? I mean, they did actually have in 2016, they did a a run through there. They spent fortunately put a lot of those resources into preparing for no deal Brexit which could also be imminent now. Uh, I mean, how prepared do you think we were PPE, that kind of thing? Well, obviously not very prepared because we had health workers going onto wards without adequate PPE in early March. And, you know, a lot of health workers, unfortunately infected and some dying over not having pop, you know, having enough protection. I think it was a combination of two things going on. I think the government was very focused on Brexit and, you know, was something far away in China just seems too far away. And I think SAGE, which should have been ringing the alarm bells, was kind of focused on its pandemic flu planning and was seeing this as pandemic flu. And also the idea is it can't be that bad. And I think this also was in the United States where you saw the whole, it's like the flu, the case fatality rate isn't that bad. A lot of people have immunity, the immunity threshold's quite low. And so kind of, I don't know if it's a psychological thing, but the idea was like, oh, it can't be that bad. And that kind of, I think, helped trigger the lack of preparedness and rushing in response where countries that had faced MERS and Ebola and SARS, I mean, Ebola kills 70% of people, MERS kills a third of people. No wonder South Korea, when they heard about a new coronavirus, started building labs and started putting in travel restrictions. They had had a virus come through, which killed a third of people. It's horrific. And so that was kind of their frame of mind where I think the frame of mind in the UK was like, eh, it's probably like a bad flu. It'll be a tough winter. We need to maybe have a few more hospitals, but not enough planning and preparation for what actually a major challenge COVID-19 is. When you saw that herd immunity was briefed to, for example, you know, the ITV political editor, what did you think when you saw herd immunity being seriously floated as a serious option by senior members of the government and its advisors, to be fair. Um, well, since we're among friends, I'll just be blunt. I mean, I thought it was insanity. I mean, cured immunity basically means we let the virus go through the population. Whoever makes it, makes it. And whoever doesn't, dies. And I I mean, I did a tweet thread that day um, after the press briefing just saying, I think they're getting this wrong because this is going to kill a lot of people. And I couldn't see any medical professional or public health professional, let alone a government, saying, I'm really sorry, but a bunch of you are going to die, whether it's 1% or 3%. It's going to be really tough. you got to get on with life. It just seems so cruel and heartless. Um, herd immunity is used in the context of vaccination programs where you vaccinate 90% of the population to protect the 10% who perhaps can't get the vaccine because they're immunocompromised. It's used in a protective way to save lives. It's never used as an explanation, a scientific rationale for actually permitting people to die. It's kind of Darwinian self-selection and in public health, like the way I've worked on it is you you actually protect the vulnerable, those who are from poorer backgrounds, those who have underlying health issues, those who have disabilities, those who are elderly and at risk of loneliness and at risk of other health issues. You're all about focusing on the minority who need protection, not sacrificing them to a pandemic. So that was kind of my frame of mind. And that's why I started, I was quite quiet before that in the UK. I was mostly doing global work 
in low and middle income countries. And that's kind of when I pivoted here when I was thinking this just doesn't sound right from everything we've known because I had been following this from early January. And it just didn't fit with anything else we had learned about this virus so far. I mean, before I come on to the approach you've always advocated and you've always stuck very consistently to it. I mean, in terms of, you know, the government could see we had Wuhan, but then we had Northern Italy. And I do remember looking back, it's kind of odd because it feels like a different universe that whole period. Um, and there was this, I remember all these very comforting things were being talked about in terms of Northern Italy. They've got an older population there. Uh, they kiss each other more when they greet each other. Uh, their kids live at home with their parents more than they do here. All these kind of comforting ideas of why it was hitting Northern Italy as severely as, as it did. But why do you think the government saw that? And also Spain, why do you think they saw that? And didn't think we really do need to act very, very seriously because we can see the consequences of not doing so. Um, I have, I mean, at a basic level, I have no idea because I think the thing that scared me about Northern Italy was that you had one of the wealthiest health systems starting to collapse under the weight of the hospitalizations. And this is what we keep getting wrong with this virus. We keep underestimating its impact on hospitalizations. And what that means is if people can get care, you can save their life. That means you can bring the fatality rate underneath 1% and you can also treat those who have you know, heart attacks or road traffic accidents. If your health services get overwhelmed, the fatality rate for COVID can go up to 10% because people can't get things like oxygen, as well as all the people who are coming into hospital with all the usual stuff and can't get treatments, your excess mortality goes up. So for me, that was a lesson from Northern Italy. And I think here there was this idea and we could you could hear it that, you know, this would just run through the population. We got to keep everybody calm, you know, stay calm. Don't panic. You know, don't overstate the problem, but also that um, we could treat our way through it, that we had an NHS and the NHS would be, you know, one of the things that's the flagship of, of the United Kingdom. And this would help us treat our way through this. But the thing that was clear once we got that data in late January about the hospitalization rate and the clinical need is no country in the world, no matter how wealthy, could treat their way through this given the hospitalization rate. And that's why we found ourselves in lockdown release cycles, because we lock down because hospitals are full and they start to clear. So we release thinking it's gone. And then the hospitalizations accrue and the governments are reactive because they're like, oh, no, health services are going to collapse. So they lock down. Um, and so that's what we're seeing over and over again, instead of actually dealing with the core problem, which is there's a virus circulating. And as long as it's circulating, we're going to be stuck in these lockdown release cycles. I mean, when in terms of if we'd locked down a bit earlier, even a few days earlier, how many lives do you think would have been saved? And also in terms of the economic effects, it's kind of gross, obviously reducing this to the economy. But the truth is, we know this from, for example, excellent work by the Sunday Times investigative team, that what was on the mind of the government was the economic consequences of lockdown. And this false dichotomy, as it turned out, between you've got to, you know, you know, between the economy and public health, when actually if you sort out your public health crisis, then, then you can sort out, you can minimize the economic consequences. If we'd have locked down earlier, what do you think? How many how many lives could we have saved? So I'm going to say something that I don't think maybe other scientists would say, but actually, if we had locked down already in late February, we probably could have saved 80 to 90% of the people who died. And I think right. the bulk of the deaths were preventable because we've seen countries that have done that, Vietnam, you know, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, even Norway, Finland, Denmark, their deaths are much less because they didn't let the virus spread. The more virus you let spread and get seeded, then the more deaths you're going to have. It's a time lag, but it accrues because a certain percentage of people are going to get it who are in risk categories. And so, I mean, this whole idea of economy versus health, and I think we've kind of hammer it's, it's been blown apart by the case study of sweden because sweden tried to save its economy and ended up doing just as badly as its scandinavian neighbors and just lost a lot more lives um and now norway is doing much better than sweden both in terms of its economy and its lives and sweden is struggling i mean it was such a red herring because you can't run an economy and keep behavior going and mobility and consumption and workplaces with a virus around that seriously makes people ill. It just, it's its impossible. And that's why I keep kind of trying to say, though I get, I know, troll for it. I say, it's not the lockdowns that are killing the economy in the longer term. It is the virus circulating. So we have to get a handle on the virus because just lifting all restrictions isn't gonna save the economy. If anything, uncontrolled spread makes it much worse. 
if you'd been supreme leader of Britain, march onwards, conferring you quite a lot of responsibility there. If you just go through, because you, as I've said, you'd be very clear from the start of what you think this country should have done. What would it have been? Go, go, kind of your key bullet points. This is what would have happened, and 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 what what that what that could have done as a consequence. Yeah, well, we'll see if I would have stayed in power if I'd have been ousted in the process because I'm not really a politician. But I think in January, obviously, I work in the area, started to build diagnostics. Do we have the testing to be able to pick it up, putting in place screening at airports for people from anywhere? Um, because we were screening passengers from Wuhan, but we know many of this, you know, the chains that came in came in from Spain and Italy and France and Austria and some kind of the European travel. Um, explain to the population early on that we are in a really bad crisis and that we need to make tough trade-offs. Um, I mean, I admired a lot Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, the way she explained it to her population when she did have to take really bold measures, like you know, shutting down the country with a harsh lockdown for a few weeks, and then built up the testing and tracing and the isolation, paid people to isolate enough um, you know, gotten the the trickiest part for me of this is because you can do the test, trace, isolate, you can do the clear communication and the guidance. It's the border issue because the UK imports, as we're realizing now, a lot of things and has it's quite a hub. So I think there it would have been not shutting off from the world, but figuring out how do we quarantine safely? I guess what France is debating today over its, um, you know, goods movement with the UK and kind of work that through in a structured way, saying, how do we shut off passenger travel? Anyway, it's collapsed in the past couple months, but how do we also keep enough food coming in, enough medications, enough vaccines, all the things that we need trade and movement for, but in ways that we actually do it safely using our testing and our tracing. But the tools we had were testing, they were messaging, good faith of the public with compliance, and then really trying to hammer this virus to the ground. But I've been kind of very focused on like the zero COVID of like, this is too dangerous to let run through a population. So we either can go towards a herd immunity model or we can go towards the elimination model and I air towards elimination. You'll have flare-ups. Australia's having another flare-up. New Zealand's going to have flare-ups, but it's easier to deal with a flare-up and deal with it for a week or two than to be living for months and months and now a year and over a year under continual restrictions. How important do you think the debacle of test and trace has been in this country? Because what the government did is handed it over to private contractors with pretty dubious track records, to be honest, like Serco. Uh, and in terms of you know, their contact rate, pretty bad. What do you think, how how much, how important as a part of the story do you think that, that was? I think it's massively important. There was the recent New York Times investigation, which showed like the billions and billions that have been spent on PPE acquisition, on test and trace, as you've mentioned, and a lot of it being wasted and gone to kind of just people who were friends with members of the Tory party. And so I think we should have built this from the ground up through the NHS with public systems in a robust and local way with you know money going to actually delivering th through like the NHS, which is again, the thing that we have in the UK that's so special. Um, so I just think so much money has been wasted. I mean, the, the puzzle, I think, this is gonna be an essay question, I think in the future for students is, how did the UK end up with the one of the highest per capita mortality rates, whether you judge it by excess mortality or COVID, one of the worst economic outcomes in the G20, I think only behind Argentina, and spending the most out of all European countries on our response? Like what happened there? And the story, in my sense, is going to be about governance and leadership and transparency and contracting. Um, it, I'm sure in the future that it's going to be used when historians reflect on this to reflect on this period of what kind of unraveled over the past couple, 10 months now. So we had this interregnum between the two waves and uh, infections did come down very significantly. Deaths at one point were about, down to about 10 a day and given they're about 450 to 500 a day, obviously it's a different, different, different planet we were living in then. How much do you think that period was just wasted? I mean, we had, and how significant do you think things like eat out to help out, you know, go back to the office. I remember the front page of the Telegraph at the end of August was go back to the office or basically you, you can lose your job. How yeah. much do you think all of that played, you know, we had space, we bought space and it, it got it got fitted away. And how much do you think policies like that played a role in that? Well, of course, because it comes down to messaging. So the first thing to say is what happens is that everyone, the government had to scare everyone in March when we went into lockdown on the 22nd, 23rd to get people to comply. They were like, stay at home. This is really serious. And generally people were scared and they wanted to protect the NHS. So they stayed home. 
And then they wanted to get the economy going, so they had to unscare them. And how do you unscare them? They encouraged them to go on holidays. They forced them to go back to the office. They, you know, subsidized a scheme, which is probably the riskiest setting that you can think of for COVID to transmit, which is like hospitality sitting inside crowded restaurants where they could have subsidized takeaways, you know, local shops, local businesses. Um, you could still subsidize the economy, but in safer ways than asking people to sit in crowded restaurants where they're not even wearing face coverings. So I think that was the issue in the summer that they kind of focused immediately their gaze on the economy without taking a more sustainable view, which is that hospitality was clearly going to struggle for months and months and months. So what is a sustainable way or sustainable economic package to get this sector up and going? Aviation. I remember being on a panel with a Tory MP who was saying, you know, you're safer flying to Spain and Greece on holidays and being in the UK because their infection rates are lower than us, trying to encourage people because aviation was struggling to go abroad on holidays instead of thinking, well, that was fine for the summer, but what are we doing now? Because our infection rate's going through and we have this new strain. There's like 50 countries that are banning travel from us. So obviously aviation's collapsing now again. So I kind of feel like it was short-term thinking instead of a longer-term, more strategic approach. And what you've seen in East Asia is they've kind of dealt with their public health problem and done a full domestic recovery and then set up aviation and travel bubbles safely with other places that have managed their crisis. So the busiest routes now in the world are in East Asia and the Pacific because they've gotten their flights up and going because they've solved, not solved, but they've managed their COVID problem effectively. So yeah, the summer for me was really frustrating because you know the whole debate was, is there gonna be a second wave? Um, is it all false positives? Is the virus gone? Are we all immune? Um, where in the end, actually the, the bigger question was how do we prepare for the winter and build up all the reserves that we need to get through a really harsh four or five months without being in full lockdown. Now, I know it's tempting with anti-lockdown sort of deniers to treat them as climate deniers or even flat earthers. But, I mean, if we look at the public at large, they're actually marginal in terms of public opinion, but they do have disproportionate clout within the media and also amongst senior Tory politicians. I mean, Rishi Sunak uh, invited in to number 10 those who defy the scientific consensus on coronavirus to brief senior politicians. I mean, one argument they make, which keeps coming up, for example, is that deaths peaked on April the 8th. I think that's actually in hospital settings alone. And the lockdown was announced on the 23rd of March in this country. And the estimated, the what they will suggest, though I, I think this is open to question, is that it's, it, takes on, it takes four weeks on average for people to die of coronavirus if they contract it. What would you say to that, those who say, well, lockdown didn't work because deaths peaked on the 8th of April, uh, and that wasn't sufficient time after the lockdown was announced to explain it. Well, the thing to realize is that your epidemic peak isn't exactly even, right? So you go up quite quickly and then you come down incredibly slowly. So you actually have more people dying on the way down than you do on the way up, if that makes sense. And so I think there, you know, the anti-lockdowners, I mean, there's two different arguments. Well, there's three different arguments I've heard from anti-lockdowners. The first is lockdowns don't work. They just say they just don't work. There's no point having them. And there I kind of think, well, that doesn't make any sense because we know from looking across Europe that lockdowns work. You just have to compare us to the United States when we've had similar infections and we've gone down and they've gone up because we've gone into lockdown. So there's observational evidence to defend that. Second argument I've heard is lockdowns, the cure is worse than the disease. So actually you're increasing harm. There are all these cancer patients going untreated. You know, there are all these people losing their jobs, poverty's increasing, mental health issues, suicides. And I completely am sympathetic to that. We know there are harms. But again, what we've seen is non-COVID harms go with COVID harms. So the more COVID you have circulating, the more non-COVID harms you're going to have as well, because these sectors are going to be anyways hit. Again, the United States is a perfect place to look at this. I remember hearing someone in Disney World in, in, in Florida saying, where I'm from, saying, you know, yes, everything's open in Disney and the hotels are open, but they're all empty. So in a way, wouldn't they rather have be shut and have financial support than be open and nobody's coming because everyone is scared because there's an uncontrolled epidemic? And the third thing I've heard is like, you know, these are these scientists of like, oh, it's not that bad. It's like the flu and, you know, we're already immune and it's harmless to under 55s. And I just think that's clear disinformation because the people who are in hospitals, the people who work are epidemiologists or virologists, public health people, we're all being really cautious. And so I think look at the behavior of the people who are studying this, seeing patients, actually following the science they're being very, very risk averse. It's not like we're all out, you know, on holidays and out in busy nightclubs. We're being cautious because we know it's a serious disease. And 
And that's why, you know, the vaccine came out. And that's why all health workers are desperate to get their hands on the vaccine, because they'd rather get the vaccine, even with, you know, some unknowns about the long term impacts, or does it stop transmission, than risk getting COVID. And I think these are kind of the three arguments that have been out there that we'd have to keep dismantling. Um, but I get people are frustrated, they're depressed, and they feel hopeless. So of course, people come, you know, these new oracles online who say things that appeal to them, and all of a sudden it becomes attractive. And I think Rishi Sunak should have really brought in some, I would have loved to go brief him and try to explain to him another way through this that would have helped the economy, but it's obviously which choices they choose to select and which ones they choose to ignore. I mean, linked to that, I mean, something to turn Rishi Sunak into a, a bet noir, and I say this because actually he's been often held up in a pedestal during this this crisis. But again, when Sage suggested a circuit breaker lockdown uh, in September on the 21st, apparently Boris Johnson, according to Sunday Times, was minded to side with the scientists. But that's when Rishi Sunak pushed against the circuit breaker uh, on the basis of the economic consequences and brought in those uh, coronavirus or lockdown sceptics to, I suppose, be more... Uh, just to just 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 to be uh, as fair as possible there. I mean, what impact do you think not having that that circuit breaker? Because obviously we ended up with a, a severe lockdown in November. Could that circuit breaker have brought down when infections were lower to a more sustainable rate, or were we always doomed to end up pretty much here anyway? Well, you could have prevented many hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, that's for sure. And you could have done it earlier because it's your epidemic curve. The longer it takes to go up, the longer it takes to come down, as I was saying. And so if your curve is up a bit, you can come down faster. And then if you get your testing and tracing going and other measures, you can keep a handle on it. It's easier to manage this virus when you have less, fewer cases. It's easier for contact tracers. It's easier for your testing systems to get tests back. And I think with Rishi Sunak, yeah, he's been, I think, a disappointment because at the start, I was thinking he could be someone who would be an advocate, who'd understand the complexity of this and actually the way through it. And in the end, to bring in people who were saying, I think, you know, one of the professors who was there was saying like, oh, just run this through and you'll have herd immunity by Christmas. I mean, this is really like bogus stuff. And we know this now because in the Amazon, tragically, in Manaus, there was an uncontrolled, largely uncontrolled epidemic in a young population. And it's almost 75 to 80 percent of people have had the virus through antibody tests. The death rate is about double what we've had. Um, they have a younger population and it's still going and it's only curtailing because people are scared and starting to kind of change their behavior. So to say that the herd immunity threshold was 20 percent or 40 percent or somehow the epidemic would stop at 50 percent is wrong. It's just wrong. And so I think that is what bothered me at the time that we we're spending a lot of time scientists like myself and others colleagues professor alan mcnally also we spent our time kind of debating what i would say is like you know these circular arguments that are not taking us anywhere instead of saying how do we suppress this in a way that keeps the economy going and keeps society moving and doesn't lead to the health system health services collapsing and you know keeps the country moving we all want the same things how do we get there that should have been the debate instead of how serious is this and should we just let it run when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I mean, if I was going to play devil's advocate, I would say, well, come on, this is so unfair. Everywhere's a mess right now. Look across the continent. Look across the United States. Sure, they could have done things differently. Now they know what you know, the challenge was, but this is a, you know, we're in winter. We know uh, there's a seasonal impact uh, in terms of these viruses. If you know it with flu, obviously that's a different virus. What would you say to that? Well, firstly, I mean, I would agree on one point, which is this is not an easy crisis for any leader or any country. There's no like easy way through this, right? There are only 
tough decisions and tough um, and, and tough d- decision making needed. But on the flip side, I mean, there are countries doing really well. I mean, if you look at parts of um, again, it's been East Asia and the Pacific. I mean, life is largely back to normal and it has been for months in Taiwan and Vietnam within their borders, New Zealand, Australia, um, Thailand, and you know, South Korea is struggling now. But again, their struggle, I know people are making a big deal of it. It's not even a bump if you plot their cases against ours. It's a bump, it's not a wave. I mean, our cases are astonishing, you know, tens of thousands every day being confirmed, probably more unconfirmed. Um, and so I think the thing to say is there was a playbook early on and the playbook was basically close your borders and test at the borders when people come in so you catch any new chains. Secondly, get your test trace isolate going, emphasis on isolation. You test people in order to figure out who they've been around and you want to get them all into isolation. If none of them isolate, there's no point doing the testing and tracing because the people are already infected. You're trying to find, you're trying to get the people who are infected, not infecting others. So they have to isolate, pay people to isolate or figure out what incentive you can offer. And third, offer really good guidance to the public on face coverings. We were really slow to face coverings on avoiding crowded spaces. Um, you know, and if you have to put in restrictions, go after those places that you know are at most risk of spreading. So like nightclubs, churches, um, you know, bingo halls, places where lots of people come together and mix. And so I think like we've overcomplicated it somehow instead of kind of boiling it down to kind of some countries are winning at this. How are they doing it? How do we copy them? It won't be perfect but it'll be better than we are now. Um, Before I end on just uh, kind of how we get back to some form of normality, we want to try and give people hope. Before we do that, there's a few questions which came in before I did this. And one of them I think is really interesting. What what are the longer term implications of COVID? I mean, it dovetails a bit with what I'm going to ask, but I'll, I'll ask that separately. Are we going to eliminate it or will it become part of the flu season? And as for long COVID, um, and we know, you know, I've got friends who suffered from long COVID, it's very real. Can we treat it or is it something that's going to stick with them? Uh, what, what would you say to those to those couple of questions? So the first question, I think we don't yet know, if I'm completely honest. I think different countries saw it in different ways. So I think in the UK and, you know, CMO Chris Whitty still says this till today, this is going to become an endemic seasonal infection. I think other countries see it as you got to eliminate it and they're going to wait for other countries to eliminate it. You know my bias, I've been saying this for months, I think elimination is the safer route. I think in its current form, it's too dangerous to be an endemic infection and it will keep collapsing us every year, especially if we let new strains and new variants develop. But every country is seeing that differently. So it's not like there's consensus in the scientific community of whether it's gonna be endemic or whether we're gonna eliminate it country by country. On the second part on long COVID, it seems like it's some kind of autoimmune condition. So what they're now working on are treatments, perhaps steroid treatments to try to suppress the immune system to see if people can get back to some quality of life and recover. It seems like that's the way it's heading towards. Um, But that's a really like, that's what I tell young people, it's a bit like Russian roulette with your health because you could get the virus and be asymptomatic and feel fine, or you could get it and have long COVID, which is pretty awful if you're in your twenties and thirties to be spending weeks and weeks and weeks and possibly months feeling unwell and unable to walk across your flat or go to work. And I think this is what's really worrying countries right now, because from an economic, really harsh, awful perspective, it's easier if people die because then they're they're dead, where if people are alive but sick, that's a real cost to your economy and your health services, because those are productive people that have been taken out of the workforce and now are becoming a drain. Um, I mean, this is something I know I, 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 I mean, we saw it happen in Contagia, which is kind of an eerie, eerily prophetic film in in some ways um but people are very interested in how covid spreads from animals to humans is this something which can be easily answered well well we know it first came we have we have spillover events and they happen quite regularly because there's about over a million viruses circulating in the animal kingdom and at some point you know we get a spillover into a human but usually that can't sustain human to human transmission and then it has to sustain it in a way like a respiratory mechanism that it can fly quickly and then it has to sustain it in a way where actually it um, can do it in a more clever way than let's say SARS or MERS because SARS and MERS would make you really ill. So you wouldn't be out circulating and at work and at parties if you had those because you'd be home and ill or in a hospital. So you have like this really, out of all these spillover events that are happening constantly, you had one that man, you know, managed through luck to kind of jump those hurdles to make it to the stage it's at. And now, yes, it jumps between animals and humans. It could be through um, you know, we saw with the minks, that's probably through touching animals and their fluids. It can be through respiratory mechanisms, you know, breathing, coughing, sneezing. And it seems like this virus does move between animals really easily, mammals. Um, and that's a worrisome 
thing because we need to be looking at all of our factory farms of, of animals and wondering actually how do we manage these better so we don't end up not just with a new SARS-CoV-2 strain, but actually antibiotic resistant bacteria, you know, bacteria coming out, which is kind of another looming thing that we've all been really worried about. And that means our antibiotics don't work anymore. It means you can't have C-sections or routine surgeries or chemo um, will put us back 50, 60 years in terms of what we can do medically. So I think um, I'm ending this on a happy note. Merry Christmas, everyone. But you know, these are the kind of things that we're worried about looking ahead. And this is how they, why animal human dynamic is so important. By the way, so this is a bit self-indulgent, but I know this has actually come up with other people, so I want to put it by you. Um, I, I never get ill. I, I, I mean, I hate it when people say that. It's kind of annoying, but I just don't. I got The last time I was properly ill, I would say I was six. And then at the end of January, I was hit by this mystery illness. I uh, had fever, 39 centigrade. When I went, it was like someone had thrown a, a bucket of water over me when I woke up in the middle of the night. Extreme chills, even though full central heating and, and duvet and all the rest of it. Uh, severe respiratory inf inf infection, labored cough, went to a doctor. This was 23rd, 24th of January. They said, have you been to Wuhan? Uh, they gave me a respirator, a, a breath, uh, um, an inhaler to help with my breathing because they were like, that's really labored. And then I, I got a bit better and then it hit me again. So I, I looked up, can you be reinfected with flu? What I'm trying to ask you is, <laughs> was this around earlier? Did people, Do you think people like me might have had coronavirus earlier on? Well, if it was late January, it might have been around because they do think this was circulating in China from mid-November, early December. We don't know the exact origin start, but it seems like it's most probable it was around November, December. And given the amount of traffic, it could have been. But on the flip side, antibody tests show that the amount of people who think they have COVID does not match the number of people who have actually had it from antibody tests. Then you could say, could people have had their antibodies fade? Like for you, could you get an antibody test and it's negative, but now we know they fade. Could you have T cell protection? We still don't have population level T cell tests. So I guess it's potentially, maybe, but I think more people think they've had COVID than have actually had it. Because everyone I speak to is like, I've had COVID and I think I've had it in February, I was ill and December, I was ill. I actually think the bulk of the population haven't had it. Then there's a theory of, could this have been circulating since last summer? And I would think not really, because we didn't see mass deaths in care homes. And that's one of the classic things you see with COVID-19, that it goes into a care home and it rips through it. If that had happened, there would have been an investigation and touch of the underlying pathogen and we would have discovered it. So I think like we can look at clues and say, well, we probably would have picked up in hospitals if a large number of people were coming in with pneumonia-like symptoms and severely unwell in the way that COVID-19 affects kind of your whole body, which is different to flu. And that's how China picked it up, right? That's exactly how in a hospital, they had a cluster of patients coming in with very similar symptoms that was not the flu. Um, and so I guess just piecing those you know, pieces of evidence together, I'm not telling you whether you've had COVID or not, but I'm saying this is kind of the way to start thinking about it. But even if you've had it, it doesn't mean you can't have it again. We are seeing rare, but sometimes reinfections with new new variants, new strains. Um, and that's not fully understood yet, even, even even if it's the same strain, how long protection would last. Before I end with a long march to normality, one thing that, and you don't have to answer this, but it, it came up. Have you, because I think you might, might have hinted on Twitter, have you come on, have you felt any political pressure in terms of speaking out or, or and just whatever you can say about that? Yeah, so I made a tweet that I think a lot of people read more into than was there back in, I think, March. So March, I was like one of the few vocal people who was saying, I think we're going the wrong way. And I was going against SAGE. I was going against what the CMO and the CSA were saying. Um, there were others who were saying the same, Richard Horton, Anthony Costello, two notable ones who early on voiced their opinions. And I could just see that senior colleagues were thinking like, what is she doing? Like, what is she saying? You're going against the established consensus. I mean, I picked up my mail recently and I got like this letter from March, which had said, how could you say that you know more than kind of the senior most scientists in the UK and again, SAGE, which is full of all these lords and SIRs and OBEs and MBEs. And so my tweet was basically saying like, you know, it's really hard to speak out because I was going against the establishment and the consensus and the scientific kind of way at that point, which if you look at SAGE papers was treating this like a flu and a flu strategy. And of course, it's going to impact your grants and your career because academia is all about reputation and peer support. And so I'm thinking of all the grants I have from NIHR, the National Institutes of Health Research down in London, and all you know the grants that are going to go forward to be under peer review in my articles, which are going to go to colleagues who are going to say, oh, she was the disruptor and the troublemaker who was kind of making a fuss when we were going a certain way. So that's the kind of pressure I felt. But I think actually, if we've looked how this has evolved, 
what I've noticed is we see more and more scientific consensus and more and more kind of people saying the same things, SAGE, independent SAGE, you know, the chief medical officer, the chief scientific advisor. Um, and so we have reached a period of consensus where I'm very much aligned with that. Um, but at the start, I wasn't. It took a long time. So that's kind of, I wouldn't know if we call it political pressure. I think it's more academic pressure of like not wanting to be a troublemaker and then upset senior colleagues who then might retaliate in some way, if that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. I mean, okay. so finally, this in terms of, let's see if we can get some hope out of this. In terms of the, you know, normality, what does normality mean? Well, I think this is, that's a, a, you know, a, a question itself. And, you know, there won't be this day when it's like, oh, hey, we're back to normal. But in terms of, this is how I define normality, being stuck in a sweaty pub where you have to fight your way to the to the bar and, and you know, you squeeze for space or, you know, young people being able to go out and party or people meeting up with each other off Tinder, just very mundane things that people mm -hmm. used to do, hugging your friends, you know, when, how do you think we get, what do you see? Because I think, is it the case that the next three months, even though we have vaccination has begun, might be the toughest in some ways, but how will that vaccination, you know, how, how long do you think the vaccination will be in terms of older people, vulnerable people before, you know, is there a time scale? I mean, also people are asking how long, do we know how long the effect will be? Will this be something every year? I mean, what's your you know, what's your rough timescale about how you see things progressing? And will there be a tipping point, maybe April onwards, where every day things become a bit more normal, if you like? Well, I think things will definitely become better from March, April, even because we're heading into longer days and summer months, and we will have another chance to try to get this right before next winter. But yeah, the big question about the vaccine is if it stops transmission. If it does, we're in a really good position. That means we can start rolling it out. And once we cover 80 to 90% of the population, which hopefully we could do by next fall, so before we go into the winter, we could reach some kind of true herd immunity with a vaccine, which means we have population protection. We don't know how long the vaccines will last in terms of immunity. That's another out, you know, question. We just don't know, but I would hope every year. Then the question becomes, do we need to have a yearly vaccination program, let's say every summer for everyone in the population? Potentially, that's maybe where we're going. Um, so that's one way to go. If the vaccines don't stop transmission and just severe disease, then we do need to think of how do we suppress this? And the other worry I have is, will we see mutations in this virus, which means our vaccines are not as effective in future years, which points to actually, do we anyways want to have an elimination strategy? And so I do wonder like more and more, the more I see about this virus, and it's not where I was immediately in January when this emerged in China. At, at that point, you know, models were saying 80% of the Chinese population are gonna get this. This is gonna run through the world within months. It's unstoppable. We do know we can control it. We do know we can suppress it. We know the things to do. And so it's how do we actually implement those alongside a vaccine while we wait to get that information. Because if it doesn't stop transmission or immunity is really short or the virus mutates, then we really have no more cards. So we anyway need to have a sustainable kind of backup plan of how do we drive this virus to low levels within our countries while at the same time we use the technology and the R&D to kind of support it and get back to some kind of normal life. But yeah, by next summer, I hope we could be approaching you know, normal life. And actually last summer in Scotland, life felt pretty normal too, because we had lifted most restrictions. The virus has eliminated, sequencing work has showed it was eliminated. Um, you know, people were out, vulnerable people were out in cafes. I mean, it felt really good, but then we just re-imported new strains when people went abroad on holidays and came back or to see family or whatever. And then we've just, we're back in the middle of it. So it's once you get to that point where you're under control, how do you maintain it? because the global pandemic is gonna go on for several years. I mean, we know African countries are not gonna get access to vaccines until potentially early 2022. So this is gonna go on a long time globally. And so it's how do you protect your population? And I do believe that once the UK gets a handle on its situation, it's in a better place to help other countries. Whereas if we continue to have a massive problem, we're just gonna to be too distracted to be able to engage globally in a way that we can actually start to help all parts of the world. And very finally, what do you think the main lessons are in terms of, because there will be more pandemics in the future. We're actually overdue a flu pandemic. I do remember seeing murmurs earlier on this summer of a, a potentially new flu pandemic in in China, though that didn't transpire so far, fortunately. But I mean, what, what do you think the lessons are? Because no one wants to go through this nightmare ever again, but it is something we have to face up to as a possibility. So how can we, what can we learn from this? So I think three things. The first is overreaction is better than waiting and watching. 
move early, move fast, and then just get blamed afterwards if you avoided a crisis. The second is humility in the face of an infectious disease. I mean, these can really blow society and the economy apart as we're learning. So never underestimate a virus. And the third is actually society, community, the collective spirit that we're all in this together, solidarity. We have to look out for each other. And the more we look out for each other, the more we'll all succeed. The more we just look out for our self-interest, the more actually we're all just gonna do worse off or better off together than we are apart. Thank you so much. What a massive honor, honestly, and so much information, so much more, so much insight. Uh, which the media hasn't, my industry, always done such a good job at conveying to people and the government certainly hasn't. So thank you so much, particularly during a national emergency where you're beyond busy. And I hope you get some time off Christmas. <laughs> Is that going to happen? <laughs> Snatch some mulled wine and mince pies and and uh, I'm, I'm sure lots of people will be raising a drink to you and your work. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you everyone for having me. I'm a massive fan and I was just thrilled to be part of this and to have this chance. And hopefully we'll meet in Edinburgh for a drink in next summer. Fingers yeah, crossed. I, I, I owe you several drinks. And my, <laughs> my, my mum lives up. My poor mum, she came down to London. We were going to hang out. I'll be able to see her distance one-on-one. -on -one. But yeah, I can't wait to hang out in Edinburgh. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I think there'll be lots of people fighting to, to buy you drink for a very long time. Well, I have promised a beach party, which people keep writing me about. They're like, when's the beach party? And so when's I think the beach party? Red a beach party on Portobello Beach. So I will send out an invitation to all. We can blast it to millions of people and have a huge beach party when this is over. It, and we will all be an absolute disgrace on that beach party. Uh, it's going to be a wild summer. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Devi. Don't forget to like the show on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and share the show with everyone. If you want to support us so we can expand, we do appreciate it a lot, either on the supporter function in the podcast description or at patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. We've got loads to come, so speak soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.